The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Ready? Mm-hmm. Why do you look so sad? I'm just thinking about... <clears throat> I think it might be time for me to graduate to adult headphones. <laughs> Are you sure? No, that's sure why I look so that? sad. <laughs> this is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. Love aliens. It's not rude. It's science. Just do it. Welcome back. Welcome back to Mystery Team Inc. The show that's starting its 30th episode. (gasps) Oh, I forgot to get you a present. I was going to get you a present. Shit. So the 30th anniversary is the pearl anniversary. Fuck. So I was like, what can I get you that's a pearl? Then I was like, what I should do is take a look back at some of our favorite episodes. But I decided to do that like 15 minutes before you got here. Mm, uh-huh. So I just queued up this one. <laughs> Great. For the 30th episode, I thought we should revisit this pearl of an intro. Nice. <laughs> You're going to like it. I'm going to chug the rest of this beer, and then we're going to do a ceremonial cracking of the beers. I already chugged the rest of mine. Okay, I'll make some more noises. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Go, I'm ready. Don't go in that lake. <laughs> <laughs> and that's summer. <laughs> Your version of summer is terrifying. It's a, it's a haunted camp. Yeah, you. <laughs> of course it is. I made that's up so several leaps. <laughs> and all that came out was don't go in that lake. <laughs> I really feel like I saw your brain make every step. There is a very rich world built of this camp in my head, but I chose to just, just say, don't go in the lake. Is the lake haunted or the camp? The, all of it. It's all haunted. It's Well, they think it's haunted, but it's really is a swamp creature. Or, okay, that was my next, next question. Thank yeah. You, you answered so that. there's like ghost story lore that they tell around the campfire. Oh. And then like the teenage counselors go to make out and they're like, did you hear? And they were like, no, that's probably just a ghost. And she's like, stop, don't say that. And then it turns out that it's a swamp creature living in the lake. He got displaced by gentrification. (laughs) I just really felt we should bring that back. I think that was truly my finest moment. I think it might have been. We've all been downhill. Should we ceremonially crack the beers for our 30th episode? You know what's funny is that this is what we were drinking. That's why I got it. I didn't, I was, that was my next reveal. Is I that had that today thought. We're drinking a watermelon-flavored beer, which is what we were drinking when Kayla made those summer sounds. Mm. Here's to 30 episodes. To 30. Dirty 30. May we finally have found our stride. <laughs> Thirsty 30. Oh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now I have two. That's fine. What if I just took it and chucked it at the wall and I was like, back to one. <laughs> <laughs> also, did you, did you notice that I discovered the solution to our beer problem? Yeah, for one of us. I know, but I only have this one, so let's get you another koozie. Okay, I, I want to, I need a curated koozie, though. Yeah, we should make mystery team koozie. <gasps> oh! oh my god, that's <laughs> such a good idea. Yes, okay, done. Okay. Where's a piece of paper? I want to write that down. <laughs> what is it, 1930? Just write it on your phone. <laughs> She's now writing on her phone with a pen. Team. I don't know. It's not showing I cleaned up my room today, so I don't have loose paper anywhere. Is Koozie with a K? Maybe. I just want to make sure I spell it right. Here, you can use this Warner Brothers notepad. I love that. With my to-do list on it. What's your to-do list? Don't... I think you wrote this. Mm -hmm. No, but this last word is, like, in your handwriting. It is. Why did you write sand sand moon? (laughs) (laughs) This list says... Uh, email supplements, print day out of days, laundry, headsets, sand moon. <laughs> Sometimes I like to go to the sand moon and pretend I'm the sand moon king. <laughs> what the Sometimes fuck? I like to go to the laundry and pretend I'm the laundry king. What the fuck is sand moon? Will you write down koozies with a K on that notepad? Also, I have some business. It definitely is my handwriting. I know. Why did look. you write that? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's actually, that's kind of a, interesting it's that you brought that up. Because that's that is coming up, but not till the next episode. Actually, I want this motherfucking thing. This is great. Oh, you weren't there. I tried to call you today. Oh, I thought you called me because my butt texted you that I was on no, my way. No, I called you, and then your butt hit like respond. You know oh. how you can like not choose not to respond. Yeah. So I called Kayla, and then I just got a text from her mid call that just said, "I'm on my way." Period. <laughs> It's 4 p.m. Like, I don't know why you would be on your way. And then I was like, did she think I was, like, calling her for emergency? And she was like, don't worry. I'm on my way. And then, like, 20 minutes went by. And I said, what? And then, like, 20 minutes went by. And she you was said, like, to my house? <laughs> 20 minutes went by. And she was like, oh, sorry. That was my butt. And I was like, okay, good to know that if it was an emergency, you wouldn't come. And you never called me back. So the reason I called I you... I thought you were calling because my butt said I'm on my way. And I thought you got concerned. And you were like, no, no, no. Don't come on my <laughs> the reason I called you was to tell you that you weren't there, but I decided that this has to be a four-episode series. Why? Because the next episode has to be Morris Black, and then the last episode has to be everything that happens in the quote-unquote second interview. It's all the aftermath from the jinx, and then the stuff that's happened between the release of the jinx and now. Yeah, that's true. It does have to be four parts. Okay, I have some business. Great. The first one is I have a correction from last episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The word I was looking for was chapter. It's called it chapter two. Yes, correct. <laughs> not act two and not it two. <laughs> Second business is I reread Thinkquarium's review and my heart grew three sizes this day. And uh, I just wanted to like, again, just be like, tell everyone how thankful I am for that, that review. Uh, it's hard for me to take a compliment, but... I really want to take that compliment because it was so nice. Uh, really? Because I me. feel like last week you were asking me for compliments. <laughs> Should we cut in me being like, no, go on. Yes. <laughs> Third thing is, did you like the blooper at the end of the last episode? Did you listen all the way through? No. Yeah. So for our listeners, they may have noticed that at the end of the last episode, Will you play it after for me? the outro plays, there's a blooper that plays. Oh, I stopped at the outro. Yeah. Because you're a Fairweather fan. 
that is <laughs> truly how I would describe my relationship with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the actual episode, I just wanted to take a minute to talk a little bit about um, domestic violence because the Robert Durr story at its core is a story of domestic violence. And mm-hmm. I felt like we didn't really address it on the last episode. Uh, so I just wanted to like take a minute to talk about it because Kath, that that's Kathy's story. And I feel like it wouldn't, we don't, it's not doing her justice to not, uh, discuss it. Mm-hmm. So just a couple of facts first, uh, the Washington post found that nearly 46, nearly half 46% of the women who were murdered in the last decade were murdered by current or former intimate partners. And one third of those male killers were publicly known to be a potential threat ahead of the attack. Most domestic violence incidents are never reported. One in four women will experience domestic violence during her lifetime, but men can be victims too. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women more than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined. Every nine seconds in the U.S., a woman is assaulted or beaten, and every year, one in three women who's a victim of homicide is murdered by her current or former partner. In children, boys who witness domestic violence are twice as likely to abuse their own partners and children when they become adults. So... If you or someone you know is experiencing or is a victim of domestic violence, please know that you're not alone and there are resources you can call. Um, you can call the, domestic, the domestic, National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE, which is 7233. They're on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. You can also visit thehotline.org, which has a number for those who are deaf or hard of hearing, and lots of other resources. For example, if you're not sure whether or not you're in an unsafe relationship, or if you're not sure if what's occurring is abuse, they have a series of articles about it. If you need help making a safety plan, they have articles for you. If you want to know how to help a friend, they have a series of resources for you as well. And of course, for any of those things, you can also call the hotline. So I just felt it was important to say that. And without further ado, let's get into Robert Durst part two. Mm-hmm. What a monster. Can I just say that uh, I picked up in the middle of the jinx for my research because uh, Kayla, you know, on the last episode, I, like, I just thought, oh, I'll just pick up where Kayla left off. So I didn't, like, rewatch all the jinx in preparation for this. I just picked up where you left off. And can I just say that the first time that Bob the Goblin comes on screen, like, I was truly deeply started startled (laughs) i was truly deeply startled like hearing his voice elicited a physical reaction for me because Mm -hmm. the for the beginning of that episode it's other people talking for like 10 minutes yeah and then suddenly his voice just comes on and i like had a physical reaction to it um i also discovered a clue (laughs) in the episode (laughs) so when they're discussing how 18 years later they sent teams in to investigate the house and to search the lake, Bob says, I wasn't the least bit concerned about the details, the divers. Do you want me to show you the voice? Mm-hmm. I wasn't the least bit concerned about the details, the divers. Search the lake until you're blue in the face. They took a wall out of the house. Ridiculous. And Jaraki says, what were the divers for? And he says... Obviously, they're looking for body parts, something looking for something that can be used as evidence. And I like when he said that my blood ran cold because I think any normal person would say they were looking for a body. Mm -hmm. And he said they're looking for body parts, Mm -hmm. which is obviously something that only the killer would know if she was dismembered. Yeah. And you made a good point. 
I don't remember it. The, well, we know that's his M.O. Because that's yeah. what he does later down the mm-hmm. line to Morris Black. That so, is a good point, me. <clears throat> so that was terrifying. Uh, and no one addresses it in, in the documentary. Why would he say body parts? It's tr- only because he knows that there's body parts. <laughs> I mean, that tells me that he dismembered her. Yeah. So that's terrifying. Um, okay. So where we left off was when they were re-interviewing everyone from the uh, original for the from the original case. Everyone basically said, "You're going to want to talk to Susan Berman. Mm-hmm. She, if anyone knows anything about it, it's Susan Berman." So about Susan Berman. Robert says, We became best friends right away. We could talk. We had a thing in common. Both of her parents died when she was young, and I had one parent die when I was young. Uh, And as we discussed on the last episode, Susan's father was a gangster. Mm -hmm. He was described as, quote, an ex-con from Sing Sing who could kill a man with one hand behind his back. She deified him. She looked up to him. She loved him dearly. She had his mugshot framed on her wall. Which is, like, kind of cool. Her (laughs) friend, Linda Obst, says, Something happened when she met Bobby Durst. It was like, here is a man as powerful as my father. He's connected. He has money. He can always get out of trouble. And he needs me. And she always used to say, and he needs me. We have a special friendship. So, so now we're back to discussing Kathy's disappearance. Um, Mm -hmm. A newspaper from the time reported, there has been no trace of sandy-haired Kathleen Durst, 29, since January 31st when she returned to her penthouse here after a weekend in the country. The doorman at 37 Riverside Drive saw her arrive home that Sunday evening and go to her apartment. Michael Strzok, the retired NYPD chief who uh, was the one who originally took the missing persons report, tells us that's not information that the police would have given out. Mm-hmm. It was being fed to the newspaper from the Durst camp, from what he calls their spokesperson. Bob says, when Kathy disappeared, he started getting phone calls from the media, and he just asked Susan to handle it. He said that she became his spokesperson. She was facilitating the story, and she was the one who established the fact that Kathy arrived in Manhattan alive. Also, update, they, in the jinx, they throw to a clip from the news of a guy standing outside the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and in the background, there's just a huge, like, brass bust of Albert Einstein, <laughs> which is, like... Why? It's so funny, because it's, like, exactly what I would imagine, based on the way that we discussed it in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, like, so silly to... <laughs> Why? Why? And it's not, like, he didn't, like, donate money to the school. <laughs> They just were like, mm, yeah, Albert. Yeah. It should probably be called like the Robert F. Kennedy School of Medicine. But anyway, okay. So as you remember, um, Kathy supposedly called the dean and told him told him that she was going to not be in class. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you ask Stephen Strzok, she didn't call the dean. Susan Berman did. Ugh. It's so gross. Because there is no credible evidence that Kathy ever left South Salem. Mm-hmm. None whatsoever. When asked, did you have anything to do with the death of your wife? The goblin says, I don't know that she's dead. <laughs> Jarecki says, do you think there's a possibility that she's still alive? He says, it's possible. <laughs> not likely. <laughs> it's not what I think. I think she's almost definitely dead, but I don't know that she's dead. 
Uh, also something to note, when Robert initially came into the city to give his statement, he didn't bring his car with him. Hmm, I wonder why. I wonder why. Could it be anything? <laughs> uh, in the fall of the year 2000, as you discussed, they reopened the case. Mm-hmm. The next day, November 1st, Bob purchased an engagement ring for his girlfriend, Deborah. Then he signed over his power of attorney to her. Great. Which is definitely something an innocent person would do. Absolutely. When asked about the New York Times article regarding the reopening of the Kathy Durst case, Julie, uh, Susan Berman's best friend, recounts Susan saying, Julie, don't talk to me about that. I don't want to talk about it. They're out to get Bobby. Susan contacted Robert and told him that the LAPD had contacted her and that they wanted her to talk about Kathy Durst's disappearance. Not long after that, Susan Berman was murdered around Christmas of the year 2000. I think it was on Christmas Eve. We're going to get to that, actually. Oh, really? Okay. Enter Sareb Kaufman. Uh, When Sareb was 13, Susan and his father started dating, and they moved in together about a year later. About Susan, uh, they all say, she laughed a lot, she spent frivolously, and everything could be turned into a story. She came alive for those years that she became their mother. When they separated, the children chose to live with Susan. That's so badass. I know. December 24th of 2000, she was late to a family dinner at her cousin's house. Her cousin Danny called her, but she didn't answer. She left a message, and she recounts it in the jinx. She was kind of like, hey, it's me. I don't know where you are. Like, Wait, pick up the day? phone. D- uh, on Christmas Eve, December okay. 24th. Um, For some reason, my brain heard September. No. December. So she left a message, and she says that Susan was always punctual. She's always on time. So she, it struck her as weird. So she called and left a message, and mid-message, someone picked up the phone. And it was a man's voice, and he said he was a detective from the LAPD. That's so fucking scary. Detectives arrived to find the back door standing open, and Susan Berman dead on the floor of the bedroom with a gunshot wound to her head. The front door was secured with deadbolt locks, and there was no sign of forced entry. So whoever killed her was probably someone that she knew and let into the house. Janine Pirro, who was, I think, the DA at the time. Yeah. She says, when I heard that Susan had been killed, the first person I thought of was Robert Durst, because we were just about to speak with her. When questioned about his own reaction to hearing the news of Susan's murder, Bob says, I felt terrible for Susan. I was astonished that they were putting this all together, that I did it or caused it to be done. Jarecki says, does it make sense to you that there were people that suspected you of having, and Bob cuts him off and says, oh, sure. I mean, because she was my spokesman and all of a sudden she's dead right after Janine Pirro's doing the investigation of me. I shut her up. (laughs) Which I know what he's doing is like projecting what they supposedly thought, but he also just is admitting to it. He just admits to it. And it's an interesting tactic that he keeps deploying where he like, He's like, well, yeah, I understand why they would think it's me. Or like, yeah, it makes sense that they would think it was me because of all of these very obvious reasons that I'm listing for you right now. But it wasn't. He always tries to like beat them to the punch of like why anyone would suspect him of something. But he always phrases it as an admission. Yeah. He never says they think that I was trying to shut her up. He'll end a sentence and just be like, I shut her up. Which feels like a very weird way of like diffusing it's like slowly letting out these admissions yeah what is he gonna do write a book about if he did it (laughs) that was by the way one of the craziest things i think in all of human history i agree 
Why would you? Why? Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's like I mean, money. Write any other book. Yeah. Write a book about how hard it has been for you. <laughs> yeah, Don't write like, a book about if I murdered them. Yeah. Like, God, that's it's so insane. Oh, the cat's here. Hi. Now, because Susan was the daughter of a mobster and she was killed execution style um, with a bullet to the back of the head, which is traditional in mob killings, there was a lot of speculation that it could have been a mob hit. She'd been working on a television show about the mob's days in Vegas when she was killed. Uh, I should say she was working on a script, like a script. She yeah. was working on a screenplay. They wanted it to be like the Sopranos of Showtime. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds Her friends say that before her death, she had talked about quote, blowing the socks off something, something big was going to happen. A few days after her murder, the Beverly Hills Police Department received an envelope in the mail. The letter was addressed only to the Beverly Hills Police, with no address, but Beverly was spelled wrong. It was spelled with an L-E-Y instead of just L-Y. It was written in all capital block letters. The note read, 1527 Benedict Canyon, and then underneath that, just the word cadaver. In all capitals. It gives me chills. The letter was postmarked the day before the discovery of Susan's body. The 23rd. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. The murderer sent that letter to the police, obviously, to, like, ensure that her body was found Mm -hmm. so that she wouldn't be laying there in her house decomposing, which establishes some kind of sentimentality or emotional connection between the killer and the victim. It's obviously somebody that cares about her. So they, the police ruled out the mafia. When Andrew Jarecki, Andrew Jarecki, mm-hmm. when Andrew Jarecki presented a photocopy of the note to Bob, he asked him what it meant to him, and Bob replied, "I mean, it's her address, block letter, so somebody was hiding their signature." Okay, that already like is. Uh, I mean, and they spelled Beverly wrong. He goes on to say, when asked why someone would send a note like this, I can't imagine. If someone liked her, why kill her? And now you're taking this huge risk. You're sending a letter to the police that only the killer could have written. Once again, just like, like it, Je- the, the the arrogance is like astonishing. It's to astonishing, me. and it's interesting because he didn't have to like say any. Like my immediate thought would not have been, oh, they wrote in block letters because they're trying to hide That's their handwriting, and he just like hands them his motive. Everything. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It's it's really disturbing. Oh, to be an untouchable white man. Yeah. Susan's computer hard drive was confiscated by the police, and one of the things that they discovered was a list of names of people who were sending her money and what amount they'd sent. They were all friends, old co-workers, that sort of thing. It turns out that she was having money problems. She was months behind on rent. And despite having written several scripts and having several meetings with industry people, no one was buying them. And so she had no cash flow coming in. Her friends say about her, she was in desperate straits. So Susan in desperate straits was very different than the Susan that I knew. People do things that their relationships change. Another friend said, Susan could manipulate for sure. She was a good manipulator and could manipulate for things she wanted. She was borrowing what is to me a lot of money the ledger reads, Sheila, $1,200. Wow. Diana, $9,000. Niall, $875. Bobby, $50,000. Some of her close friends have insinuated that she could have suggested something to Bob. 
not blackmailed him per se, but suggested Mm -hmm. that she might talk to the police about information that she might have had about Kathy's disappearance because she was his spokesperson during that time. So Bob didn't attend Susan's funeral, despite the fact that according to her close friends, he was in LA at the time. I mean... (laughs) But right after Susan died, Robert reached out to Sareb, her adopted son. Sareb says, that was right around the time that he became a suspect, but it never made sense to me. Not even for a second. I know how Susan felt about him. And throughout the documentary, The Jinx, Sareb like sticks to his story. Yeah. He's like, I just, I don't see it. I, I don't believe it was him. I don't see why he would do it. I understand the motive that they've painted for him, but it just doesn't make sense to me. I truly don't believe it. So Sareb became really close with Robert. Um, and close friends of Susan say that Robert called them right around the time of Susan's funeral and uh, was sort of like offering condolences and offering to help them in any way that he could. One of her friends says he was trying to make allies in Susan's camp. Why? I don't know. Another friend says he called and just said, you know, like, isn't it so sad? And Andrew Jarecki asks her, did he mention the investigation into Kathy, into uh, Susan's murder at all. And she says, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, he might have. And he also called Sareb. So he reached out to Sareb, her adopted son, and offered to help him in any way he could. Um, So Sareb started to become close with Robert. And in that time period, it came out that Sareb had never gone to college. So Bob asked him how much it would cost to send Sareb to college. And he said... He estimated it would cost about $200,000. And he said, you know, I padded a little bit, but that is really what it would cost with tuition and food and whatever. And Bob said, I'll give you twenty five grand a year for four years, which is definitely not something a person with a guilty conscience would do. And we will discuss that more after the break. Great. <laughs> we'll be right back. And we're back. We are back. So, uh... Before we continue on with our story, I'm going to talk a little bit about Susan's life. Yes. So Susan was born in 1945, and she was raised largely in Las Vegas. Her father, David Berman, as we know, was a mobster. He was one of the pioneers of gambling in Las Vegas. He was partners with a, he's described as a flamboyant mobster, Bugsy Siegel. Wait, how do you, what do you mean the pioneer of gambling? Like, I think he was one of the guys who made Vegas gambling. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? No. I mean, yes, but how do you do, like, how do you just. He was somehow involved in, like, turning the hotels into casinos. So he, like, walked into Vegas with Bugsy Malone (laughs) and was like, all right, guys, you know what we're going to do? In 1946, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky opened the Flamingo as a casino. And it was like one of the first, I think, casino hotels on the Strip. That's so cool. And um, then between the years of 1952 and 1957, the mafia constructed Sands, Sahara, New Frontier, Showboat, Fremont, Riviera, Royal Nevada. Like they started Tropicana. Like they started constructing all these casino hotels. That is so crazy. So he basically, like, invented gambling in Las Vegas. Uh, Her father did. He died of a heart attack when Susan was 12, and then her mother committed suicide a year later. In her memoir, Easy Street, 
she tells the story of her upbringing along with research that she did about her father because she learned that he was a mobster after he died when she was like in her 20s. Some interesting tidbits. Liberace apparently sang at one of her childhood birthday parties. That is so... (laughs) Because that's like how in the mafia her dad was. Oh my God. And also how the flamingo her dad was. That's a very flamingo thing to yes. have to like have Liberace sing at your child's birthday yes. party. Yes, that's like the mo- that's the most mob that's the most Italian mob thing I've ever heard in my I entire life. Love it. Like yeah, um, and then she recalls being taught to play gin at age four by men who she considered uncles, but were actually her bodyguards. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that so cute? That is so cute. She was like Uncle Joey, and he's like. Yeah. <laughs> Do I play cards? Hey, yo, uh, Susan, uh, maybe we should uh, play our cards in the other room. Hey, baby Sue. <laughs> Aw, baby you Sue. You want to go play with your Barbie dolls upstairs while Daddy <laughs> has his business meeting? Okay, Uncle Joey. Uh, it's really funny to me now to think about, like, have you? how do you look at... I mean, this is funny because it's your mom's name, but it's funny to, like, look at a baby and be like, Susan. Susan. <laughs> <laughs> well, they called her Tui. Did they? Mm-hmm. Like Audrey, too? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Tui. Oh, Tui. Yeah, because she, I think it was like my aunt couldn't pronounce Susan. Oh. So she called it Tuesday. Mm. So I called her Tui. Tui. After graduating from UCLA, she... Wait, I have a question. Yeah. Did she inherit money from her parents? Uh, I don't think I wrote this down, but I, I will tell you in a moment. Actually, this would be the time to tell you. Yeah. So once when she was like 20, once when she was like 25, and once when she, mm, those are probably not the right ages. Don't quote me on this. But three times throughout her life, she received um, money, not from her parents or from like a life insurance policy, but from the mafia paying her out for money they were making on the casinos. She got, and she inherited like $4 million. Wow. But her, so her parents didn't like leave her anything. Cause he must've had a lot of money if he was in charge of gambling in Vegas. Yeah. I mean, he had a lot of money. I don't know. I'm sure he had a life insurance policy cause he was in the mafia. Yeah. So she probably got a life insurance payout. And then payout. her mom immediately passed away. So yeah. like. She probably got a life insurance payout. I know she got four, $4.3 million over the course of like 10 years just from getting paid out from the mafia. That is also so cute. Again, yes. the mob is being so freaking cute. Yeah. And they're like, hey, yo, what? You think we should send a cut of this to little baby Tui? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. That is She's really in cute. college. She's going to be something. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so after graduating from UCLA, she became a journalist. She worked briefly for the San Francisco Examiner. Um, then she moved to New York and published a story called Why I Can't Get Laid in San Francisco. Which, What's the answer? I don't know. I really want to read that that article. <laughs> then she published Easy Street in 1981, which was the memoir. Um, in her LA Times review of Easy Street, Carolyn C. wrote... She had been taught, somehow, to be both proud and ashamed of what she came from. The story here, then, is not about the crime, but about a pitiably defenseless girl who sets out to make sense of emotional disaster to gain control over an enormous legacy of doom. Damn. Which I thought was super cool. Uh, and then there's an excerpt. I, I got a lot Will of this info. again, just so that we can apply it to the rest of the story? Mm-hmm. She had been taught, somehow, to be both proud and ashamed of what she came from. 
The story here then is not about crime, but about a pitiably defenseless girl who sets out to make sense of emotional disaster to gain control over an enormous legacy of doom. <sighs> Foreshadowing. Truth. Uh, and then in an excerpt, I got most of this. I got most of this information from an LA Times article about Susan that came out after the Jinx came out, um, and it included this excerpt from Easy Street. As a first-generation Las Vegan. It's so interesting because she was a like first generation because no one really lived in Vegas yeah. until like the 30s. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, As a first generation Las Vegan, I had known only the life he had chosen to give me. The background sounds of my childhood were slot machines crunching, dice clicking, the songs of Sophie Tucker and the Andrews sisters, and the carping of an ever-present hotel page. To this day, the desert air invigorates me and exhilarates me like nothing else, and hotel coffee shops and floor shows give me a tranquilizing sense of security. That is, what a crazy childhood to have. It's super interesting, but I feel like we feel similarly about LA. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I feel, like, more at home in some of the weirdest situations because of growing up in Los Angeles. Or, like, parties in the Hollywood Hills (laughs) where people are doing coke off each other and, like, you don't really know anyone. I'm like, ah, home. (laughs) (laughs) I have another question. Mm-hmm. What was in Vegas before Susan's dad? Uh, was it like Rachel, Nevada? No, it, they legalized gambling in the 30s. So it, it, I think, I mean, it just wasn't like branded as like a destination until okay. like the 50s. I would, I th- maybe I have to read a book about the history of Las Vegas. Yeah, they, the, uh, okay, President Herbert Hoover signed a bill in 1930 for the Boulder Dam to be built. Boulder Dam was later renamed the Hoover Dam. The work on the dam started in Las Vegas in 1931, and the population of 5,000 grew to 25,000. Oh, interesting. The dam was completed in 1935. Um, the workers for the dam returned home, but the tourist population picked up because they wanted to see the dam. And then in 1941, a gunnery school for the U.S. Army was established in Las Vegas, but they disliked the legal prostitution that was available to their soldiers. So Vegas outlawed prostitution and the popular red light district was put out of business permanently. Rude. Thomas Hull saw the need for luxury hotels for the tourists. And in 1941, he opened the first resort on what is now the Las Vegas Strip. So, yeah, I mean, it it really was just. It started with the Hoover Dam and then the army men came in and ruined a lot of people's lives, a lot of Mm -hmm. women's lives. Yeah, sounds like it. And they built a hotel. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Her book, Easy Street, was optioned for uh, $350,000. And she moved to L.A. to be closer to the industry, but they never actually made the book into a film or TV show. Who optioned it? No. Then she met the man who she married in 1983. She met Mr. Margulies. When I first read that, I was like, yeah, okay, Mr. Margulies. And, like, articles kept referring to him as that. Apparently that was what he went by. His name was Mr. Christopher Margulies. Like Mm M-I-S-T-E-R? Yes. It says that on his tombstone. Like his give... Do we think it was a given I don't know name? if it was his given name, but it's on his tombstone. So they'd be like, hey, mister. Yeah. And then a lot of people would turn around and he'd be like, no, no, no. I'm mister. That's Mr. my name. Yes. That's a badass name. His name was Mr. Margulies. Um, he was 25 and she was 38 when they married. Dang, girl. She threw a lavish wedding at the Hotel Bel Air. And you'll never guess who walked around the aisle and gave her away at her fucking wedding. Bobby Durst. It was good old goblin of mirth, Robert Allen Shovel King Durst. (laughs) (laughs) 
sorry. Good old <laughs> Goblin of Mirth. Robert. Robert. Allen. Allen. Shovel King. King Durst. Durst. Great, 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 great. That's the episode <laughs> title. Absolutely. Good old Goblin of Mirth. Robert, Robert Allen. Shovel King. Durst. Tattoo um, that on my eyelids. Yeah, he gave her away at her fucking wedding. Of course he did. He was her surrogate father. Yeah, that's true. Remember what you were saying about how? Yeah. It was like people were saying that she basically like met basically her father met her. in Robert. Yeah. And that's why she was so, yeah. Um, God, I'm not over that. Intertwined with him. Good old Goblin of Mirth, Robert Allen, Shovel King, Durst. <laughs> I think about the first shovel cake. <laughs> first of his name. <laughs> first of his name, Goblin of Mirth. <laughs> Robert Allen, King of the Shovels and the Trash. Durst. <laughs> king of the Boats. King of, oh yeah, what else was he king of? He was king of other. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, Mr. passed away less than a year after the wedding of a heroin overdose. Dang. Susan then went on to date. What was his deal? I don't know anything about him, actually. I didn't do a lot of research on him. All I know is that he was young and addicted to heroin. That's fine. I'm just being nosy tonight. Then she went on to date Paul Kaufman, who we know because he's Sereb's father and Mm -hmm. and Sereb's sister's father. Um, And that's how she essentially ended up with adopted children. And then, Interesting tidbit, she and Paul Kaufman actually had a Broadway musical in the works that never came together. Wait, I think I read about this. What was it about? I don't know. It was... Was it like, but was it Bugsy Malone? <laughs> no, it was, um... It was a, a, a musical based on the Dreyfus, Dreyfus Affair. Oh, I vaguely remember reading that. So bizarre. What are you doing? In 1996, she was a writer and co-producer of an A&E documentary that aired in two-hour segments called Las Vegas Gamble in the Desert and then uh, Las Vegas House of Cards. She also authored a companion book to the series called Lady Las Vegas, The Inside Story Behind the Neon Oasis, which was published the same year. And in the year 2000, Susan agreed to speak to District Attorney Janine Pirro, uh, regarding the disappearance of Kathy Durst. And according to New York Magazine, she actually told one friend that she'd provided Bob's alibi. To Janine? She told a fr- one of her friends that in the disappearance of Kathy, she'd provided Bob's alibi. Uh, oh, I see. To the, like, for the police. Yeah, that tracks. So, I mean, the rest of that is history. Um, so now we can pick back up. Speaking of alibis... After Susan's murder, when the police interviewed Bob's then-wife, Deborah, she declined to answer anything that was considered spousal privilege, because if you'll recall, like two months before that, he proposed to her. Janine Pirro says of her in the, The Jinx, lovely woman, elegant, smart, couldn't remember where Robert Durst was around Christmas time, even though they were newlyweds. <laughs> <laughs> The police spoke to at least two witnesses around that time who claimed that Susan said that Bob was supposed to visit sometime around the holidays and that she was looking forward to it. We do know that Bob did go to Trinidad, which is a town in Northern California, around the time of Susan's murder. When uh, Andrew Jarecki asks Bob what's in Trinidad, Bob tells him that it's very rural and that he'd lived there on and off for a number of years. 
When pressed about being in California around the time of Susan's murder, Bob says, I got there a long time before December 23rd, a long time before Christmas. <laughs> Your impression is getting really good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it kind of took, like, caught me off guard. <laughs> That's how I felt when I first started researching this and I just heard his voice. So once again, he says, I got there a long time before December 23rd, but I'm not sure it's public knowledge that she was murdered on 23rd. On the just on 20, December twenty third. No, because I until this moment thought she was thought murdered, she was on, murdered on the twenty fourth. Yeah, but she was just found on the twenty fourth. And we find out later that the coroner said that she was probably dead about twenty four hours when they found her, and they found her the morning of, or like the afternoon of December twenty fourth. I'm so tired. Like wow. So uh, he just like he just keeps tipping How his hand over do and over shit like that. That's like know. if I would like if someone was cheating on someone, and you're like, I don't even know where the person you think I'm having an affair with was. On the day before you think I'm fucking them, at 11.59 p.m. when I was also out of the house at a business meeting. <laughs> right. So a Eureka cab driver uh, tells us that he picked Bob up from the airport in Trinidad on December 19th and took him to Harper Ford to pick up his car keys and then took him back to the airport where his car was. The Arcata Airport parking facility keeps logs of cars like in their long-term parking and they did they did determine that Bob took his car out of long-term parking on December 19th. Bob had two calling cards that he would use, and they determined that he made two phone calls using that calling card from the town of Garberville, which is 80-ish to 90 miles south of Trinidad. So we know he was moving south, and we don't know. Mm -hmm. There's no explanation for it. Well, there is. Other (laughs) (laughs) Other than the obvious explanation. We also know that he had been checking his voicemail messages several times per day up until this time. But during this period of time, there's no activity on his phone. And the phone company said it looked like the phone was off. We know that he was moving south and then he turned his phone off. That is... Actually, he turned his phone off before he was moving south. Not even the least bit suspicious. Not something a guilty person (laughs) would do. (laughs) Just something a guilty person did. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Not something a guilty person would do, but something a guilty person did. Yeah. Bob was off the grid until December 23rd, when he then appeared at a counter in San Francisco to purchase a plane ticket back to New York. His flight left at 10 p.m. on the 23rd. Susan's body was discovered the next day, and according to the coroner's report, she'd probably been laying there for about 24 hours. How long is the drive from L.A. to San Francisco? Six hours. And her body was probably discovered at around 11 Mm a.m., like somewhere in the early, Mm -hmm. late morning. Yeah. And she had been dead for like 24 hours. Yeah. And Bob was off the grid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's also exactly who he is. Yes. Correct. (laughs) Hmm. Who knows? The next time um, after she passed away that Bob came to town, he asked Sareb to have dinner with him. Jarecki in the Jinx asks Sareb, did you have that dinner? Sareb says, we did not have that dinner. And Jarecki says, why didn't that happen? And Sareb says, because apparently shortly thereafter, he was on the run for, well, at the time it was, arrested for murder and dismemberment of a body. So he missed the dinner. (laughs) The funny thing is, the murder that he was being arrested for and the dismemberment of a body was not the murder of Susan Berman. And it wasn't the murder of Kathy Durst. I was going to say, I bet it wasn't that one either. It was a whole nother murder. Ah! Yeah. (laughs) He's just the worst. (laughs) 
He is just the worst. Truly the good old goblin of mirth, (laughs) Robert (laughs) Allen Shovel King Durst. And that's why this series has to be four fucking parts long, because there's just more murders. What a fucking... Also, my mom listened to part one, evidently, (laughs) allegedly, because, and I I know this because, she texted me out of the blue at like 2 p.m. last week, is Robert Durst still alive? (laughs) With like no context. And I said... Yeah, dude. And he's going to trial in January. And she just wrote, yikes, with like three exclamation points. <laughs> That's such a mom move. I posted it on the Mystery Team Instagram, so if you want to so see. Um, yeah. Oh, my God. I can't wait to do a follow-up after that trial. I know. I hope it's... <gasps> Yay. Should we just go to the trial? <laughs> I don't think it works like that. Yeah, it does. I don't think anyone can go to the most high-profile murder trial of but the 20th century. Bitches fall in love with Ted Bundy. <laughs> that was different. Ted Bundy escaped twice from just like jumping out a window in a courthouse. Oh, yeah. The rules were different. The rules were different because now you're not allowed to jump out windows in courthouses. <laughs> <laughs> now they make people watch you. Ted Bundy was like waiting, awaiting trial, and he like went into the library in the courthouse, and the guard that was with him was just like, have fun in there, nerd. And then he just jumped out a window. He like practiced jumping. And then he. He ran off for like two months and just like lived in the wilderness. And every night it was like a different, very skinny girl with long hair. Who? Didn't, weren't all those women in love with Ted Bundy? Yeah, but you, you picked that up about... <laughs> I'm just imagining the, What I the said 70s. was he ran off into the woods yeah. for like two weeks. And then he was visited. And then you just said, and then every night yeah. it was a different... In, you made it sound like it was in the woods. Yes, that's what I was saying. No. They all came out to visit him in the woods. No, they, and they like They, like, relay raced You're it. stressing me out so much right now. <laughs> this is so off the rails. You don't like it? No, I hate it. And they were wearing, like, peasant blouses. I hate this. And they all had middle parts. <clears throat> yeah, like, they all looked like Squeaky From. Yeah. So that's Robert Durst Part 2. <sighs> I think. Or is it Ted Bundy Part 1? <laughs> <laughs> The real mystery of Ted Bundy is what were the girls wearing when they went and hung out with him? <laughs> Flares? The real mystery is why. Why? Well, we know why. Mm-mm. Because some people get fucked up in the head. No. Yeah. It's a mystery. Oh, okay. It's not just like a psychological phenomenon? No. Oh, okay. It's a mystery. That'll be our next one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll Thank see you, for you listening. next week for something completely different on a totally different topic because... I think we've covered all of this. And now for something <laughs> completely different. I mean, it is actually going to be something completely it is. different. It's the same guy, but it's completely different. He just like runs the spectrum on like goblin. He does. Yeah. Uh, follow us on all the things at Mystery Team Inc. Send us an email at mysteryteamincorporated at gmail.com. Just send us an email. Just send it. It doesn't have to be. I just want like... Just say hi. Like Send fun, us a DM a on Instagram. Um, rate and review. Tag us and stuff. Rate and review. Oh, yeah. Tag us. That's a new one. Tag us and stuff. I would love to be tagged in some fun spooky it, stuff. Yeah. If you see something you think will like tag us for sure. Um, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence or is a victim of domestic violence, please know that you're not alone and there are resources for you. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-SAFE or visit thehotline.org. Anything else? I think that's it for now. As always, thanks for listening. We don't know. Fuckle the buck up. Stay in your lane. Smooches. You got to do it this time. (laughs) 
I liked it when you did it like a perfume ad. Smooches <laughs> by Britney Spears. <laughs> Only at Macy's. <laughs> it's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.